Hello, and welcome again to another episode of Happy Hour Live with Brian Rosen. We are neither live, and we are not an hour, but we are indeed happy. Today, we have a special guest. Matthew Parent from Vincente and Partners is with us. And I first met Matthew, or Matt, what can I call you? Either is good, Matthew, Matt. Perfect. I will call you both. I first met Matt. Um, we were looking at a deal together for a, uh, a brand in the Better For You category. And it was very clear to me and very evident to me that um, not only does he know what he's doing in the M&A world, in the banking world, but he knows the beverage space. So I wanted to bring him on the show because I think that a lot of the listeners have expressed to me through the social channels that they want to learn more about the banking side of what we do. They want to learn more about investing and they want to learn more about how brands are valued. So I guess, Matt, let's start with, um, I know the, the listeners have not had a chance to hear you talk yet, but you have a bit of an accent and I'm no expert, but I do believe that's not Ohio. So where are you from and, and how'd you get to where you are today? Sure. So thanks, Brian. Uh, I was born and educated in France, but moved out of the country back in 2007. Uh, I actually spent a few years, seven years in the UK, worked in London before moving to New York in 2015. Uh, and I'm still, I'm still in New York now. So it's been, it's been a little bit of a ride. Most of my career, uh, starting in the UK and then moving over to the US was with JP Morgan. Uh, in most of it being in the coverage of consumer and retail companies as part of the investment bank. Uh, and a common factor of all these years, whether it was in Europe or in the US, has been the coverage of premium consumer products and notably spirits and beverage alcohol. So it's been, it's been now more than a decade working and talking to companies up and down the scale and across the space uh, in, in both geographies. So is it correct to say that's not an accent from Ohio? Yeah, it's, it's, it's distant. I'm, I'm sure there is a, a group of, of French people and French descendants in Ohio, but that's yeah, yeah. a very, very loose relationship. But they're not you. No. Um, and I don't blame you, frankly. Own it. Own that you're not from Ohio. Vincente and Partners, how do you fit into the ecosystem of what's going on in the beverage world currently? Yeah, that's, that's a great question. And, and I think, you know, I can, I can speak a little bit more about Vicente and Partners and how it came together as well. So our founding partner used to lead the global consumer coverage for JP Morgan as well, spent a few years outside of investment banking and decided to come back and create his own advisory boutique. Uh, we came together with the strong perspective that a lot of the consumer activity across a number of sectors and beverage alcohol is no exception, but most of the innovation of the small things that are happening are really the result of creators, founders that have an idea and decide to put their blood and sweat into it and really go after it. And that's typically platforms like JP Morgan or even mid-sized boutiques typically spend limited time on these sort of situations. Uh, and we wanted effectively to create a platform that would have the capacity to do so. So we tend to be a little bit more flexible in terms of the size of the opportunities and the type of situations that we work on. Uh, we tend to take a longer term perspective about the opportunities we're covering and working with. Um, so that's essentially the sort of very short version of how, 
how we operate. Uh, happy to share more if it's relevant, but want to keep it focused, of course. Sure, absolutely. And and so it brings up a great point. So we, whether it's InvestBev or Vincente and Partners or PNC Bank, right? We're seeing mass amounts of capital flood into the adult beverage business. The main reason that I see it coming in, and I, would, I welcome your thoughts, of course, is there's this notion of non-correlated asset investing. There's a notion that the adult beverage business has gone up every year since 1933 in terms of consumption and dollars spent. Is, is booze a safe bet? Because, and I asked the question, right? Is adult bev a safe bet? Because banks don't like to lend on it. So if it's so safe as you and I think it is, or as I think it is, and it's so non-correlated as I think it is, then you know, what the hell with the banks? Why, why can't suppliers, big and small, go get money from the, the bank, right? Just to, to make the product that is theoretically safe. What say you? Yeah, I think it's, it's, it's all coming down to the difference between industry and specific companies. And, and coming from a platform that has a very specific and dedicated beverage financing platform, uh, I know there was a lot of appetite to work with companies that were a little bit outside of the fray. And what I mean by that is definitely very aggressive lending practices, and that's not exclusive to the platform I'm coming from, to the distributors, for instance. So companies that are benefiting from the overall industry and sector expansion, as opposed to taking very specific bets on single companies or single, single brands. So that's that's certainly one of the biggest aspects that I'm seeing. So let me let me see if I can if I can't. Um, you're much smarter than I am, so I'm going to dumb that down. <laughs> you're saying that it's better for bankers or for smart money to invest in categories and not brands. It's not always the case, but for a category like adult beverage, just like you said, this is something that a category as a whole that has not known compression for a number of years. Uh, and that even in the context of a recession, whether it was recently or uh, 10 years ago, a little bit more than 10 years ago with the, the financial crisis, that has not seen meaningful compression, if any compression at all. Uh, and on top of that, I would even say that with the long-term trends of premiumization, uh, I've seen a constant expansion from a dollar standpoint. But it's a little bit the difference between the tree and the forest. Uh, as part of that bigger picture, you certainly have brands that are doing extremely well, but you also have others that are suffering either high growth, single company, single brand companies uh, that have benefited from, from very strong growth for a certain period of time and then enter a plateau, uh, or some of the brands in the portfolio of larger companies that, for whatever reason, whether it's the trends or because they receive less marketing support, start going into a downward trend. So. Uh, it's it's not a situation where every single situation, every single brand will benefit from otherwise the expansion of the category. Listen, if we if we break it down even within the different categories of spirits, it's it's very well known, of course, that tequila is having a number of banner years with a type of double-digit type of growth for easily the last five years, if not more. Uh, but when the overall category is growing mid to high single digit, it means it means that other categories need to let go uh, and effectively grow much slower, if not decrease, uh, to give space for tequila to grow. 
you know, it's, it, you know who fucked the whole thing up was Casa Amigos. Be, <laughs> because you probably saw it too. You have this, you have, you know, for the longest time, vodka was, you know, the, the preeminent, from a spirit standpoint, vodka was the preeminent category. And it is, it, it yeah. is the largest. Well, it's the largest category, but it's, it's also the one that, that the consumers are most indifferent about, meaning there's no premium vodka. The difference of a hundred dollar vodka and a $50 vodka is hard to discern, you know, and whiskey, it's not uh, tequila. It's not, you can actually pay more for a better tequila and taste a better tequila. You can pay more for an aged whiskey and get a better whiskey. That POD or point of difference is, is harder in, in vodka. What I was going to say is that, you know, George Clooney, God bless him, and Randy Gerber and the crew, um, they really messed it up for everyone because we saw from an equity standpoint, and I'm, and I'm curious as to if you saw the same thing, a lot of people coming into the space based on, hey, if George Clooney can do it, let me, let me do one-tenth of that and sell it for $100 million instead of a billion. Well, you're forgetting one thing, you know, um, Bill from Connecticut or Steve from San Antonio, right? You're forgetting that it's George Clooney and Randy Gerber, one of the number one nightlife aficionados on earth in Randy Gerber, and George Clooney, arguably the biggest Hollywood star over the last 20 years. So they have a marketing angle that you don't have. And, and that sale, while wonderful for them, really created a, a bifurcation of the market because the people that make great tequila brands still make them. People that are hopping in the game for an exit uh, also increased, which only went to confuse the consumer. You know, what do you think? Yeah, I don't, I don't know exactly where the question is in all of that. It's but the, the big picture is correct. I mean, you know, one, one of the difficulty in the current market is one, of course, celebrities have had the past 12 months without, you know, shooting movies. And so they've had a lot of time to, to think about that. But if I go back to your original point, Casamigos, because it was so successful in finding an exit and having some very specific aspects of differentiations you've highlighted, it's also hiding the fact that celebrity spirits is not new. Celebrity spirits have existed for a very long time. There were a number of brands that existed before and that have stayed effectively very small, mid-level, or even completely forgotten because they did not have either the commitment, the star power, uh, that, that Casamigos effectively managed to capture. Maybe this was also not the right point in time. Not every brand, it, it needs to be the meeting of, of a brand and the zeitgeist of the moment when the consumers are actually looking for something specific. Uh, and a brand that is ahead of its time may not always be finding the right, the right results. Um, yeah. yeah, look, I don't... I, I, I don't, first of all, I'm glad you used the word zeitgeist. I wasn't going to use that today that word. So I'm glad you use that. Look, it's, I can, I'll use Puff Daddy, another word I didn't think I would use today, but I'll use Puff Daddy as an example. You know, when he was on top of his game on television every week, he was one of the original hosts of The Voice, I believe. He had a show on MTV. He was coming out with new music. He was in Raising the Sun on Broadway. And Ciroc Vodka was top of the charts. As soon as he faded from public uh, domain, so did the product. And that's the challenge you have with celebrity brands. I mean, it's one thing that 
you know, Angelina Jolie and Brad Pitt have a rosé, right? It's one thing that Bruno Mars has something and, and uh, Casa Amigos has the guys and The Rock has his tequila. And it, we can go on and on and on, people that make wine and, and do these things. Uh, Emily, Rod- Emily Ratajkowski and, and Babe Rosé and the Fat Jew and, and, and that whole crew. Th- there's money to be made. I guess what I always settle back on is that the U.S. consumer isn't stupid. And they want a good product above and beyond who pimps for it, right? Who sells it? They want a product that they can, regardless. Now, with the celebrity aspect of it just gets it to a higher shelf position, but it doesn't yeah. make the reorder. Yeah, no, I think, I think you're, you're spot on on that. And, and two aspects that I'm, I'm usually trying to have in mind when looking at brands is, well, first on the celebrity aspect, what you're getting with the celebrity aspect is essentially, I wouldn't say free marketing, but you're getting exposure for dollars that you don't need to spend. Yeah. Right? And so if the celebrity, for whatever reasons, decides to step down or their star is fading, it means that for the equivalent of time spent, you're starting to get diminishing results. Right? The equivalent marketing spend yep. starts getting smaller and smaller. So it's one of these situations where well, if the celebrity cannot make up for that, you're ending up in a situation where the marketing dollar, the actual marketing, will need to step up to sort of meet back the, the needs to support the brand. So I haven't run the analysis for a long time, but top of mind, what I recall among the major listed players, typically ANP as a percentage of sales is going to be, for the majors, it's anywhere between 5 and 10%. I'd say 7 to 8% is probably where the, the, the right level is about so that's one thing that's the that's the benefit in in air quotes of the celebrity is that you're getting this marketing spend without actually having to spend it from a dollar standpoint you give it in the form of equity they're an owner they're a co-owner something similar to that but you're not actually spending the money for it doesn't change the fact that you this is what you're getting then if i'm taking a step back and the way i'm thinking about any brand really, but more importantly about premium brands is effectively three aspects to get it moving. One, it's the story. Two, it's the bottle. Three, it's the liquid. The celebrity is going to bring you the story. That's how people hear about it. That's what will make them curious. We'll be looking for the brand, asking for it at the bar or at the store. Two is the bottle. If the bottle stands out, it will drive more curiosity. If the bottle doesn't stand out and you're like stuck on the shelves, just like I know you love talking about, you're going to be in a world of trouble. And so this is this whole aspect where depending on the category, there are different ways to stand out. Just like you said, vodka, it's tough to be differentiated. Does it make sense to spend a lot of your expenses on a bottle in vodka where the price will be capped? Probably not. Then when you're going into cognac, tequila, scotch, categories that can premiumize immensely, you have, of course, this like limited series that, of course, they will stand out. And this is what is driving some of the curiosity. There's more considerations there. I think having a good name also helps a lot. If the name is complicated, too long, tough to put on the, on the bottle, doesn't really stand out, I think it's also part of the same broader packaging and how you stand out. Yeah. And then the third, maybe right, the most obvious one, it's the liquid. If the liquid is not good and people try it and don't come back, well, you don't have much of a business in the long term. So it's these three aspects that I'm trying always to 
get a good feel of uh, whenever I'm, I'm starting with a brand and, and working with someone. Yeah. And you know, all great points, Matt, for sure. And I, and I think uh, one thing to note also is there is this other subcategory of celebrity brands and I'm, we, we're, we're in a rabbit hole here, but the, like we've, we've worked with um, Heaven's Door Bourbon and Heaven's Door Bourbon is a Bob Dylan brand, but it's not about Bob Dylan. It just happens to be his brand. Um, so you, <clears throat> if you play word association, you, Heaven's Door obviously is a Bob Dylan song, um, but nowhere is there really reference on the bottle or the marketing to Bob Dylan. And the brand's killing it because it's got good packaging, good juice, and it has a story if a story is needed. But that's the part of celebrity branding that I really do enjoy, that it's the celebrities there if you need it. You can pull the big gun out of the bag if you have to, but let the brand stand on its own because they're not going to rebuy a brand because Bob Dylan, it's his. They're going to rebuy a brand uh, because they like it or because it's flavorful or their friends like it. And don't forget, as we always talk about on this show, and we've talked about this for years, is that it's that second sale that matters. So the second purchase. So Bob Dylan may get you off the shelf, uh, but he won't get you back, right? Uh, and I'm sure there's a song in there somewhere, but he, you know, he'll get you, he'll get you to buy it once, but he won't get you to buy it twice. Um, no matter how, how great he is. That, um, that's fair. I mean, yeah. it's, it's not one size fit all. Uh, depending on the celebrity, depending on the category, the, I mean, first, not all celebrity will resonate authentically with any category and in any ways. I think Bob Dylan being the person he is and the sort of massive celebrity, he doesn't need to be front and center. This is part of his persona as well. Yeah. You have others going into tequila where you move them out of the picture and you just have like a random tequila that doesn't stand out. It's, <laughs> I yeah, don't need to throw names there. No, I will. It's, uh, I mean, it, there, look, there's a difference between The Rock and how he's promoting his tequila and how Bob Dylan is promoting his tequila. And I also think, and then we bourbon. can, uh, sorry, his bourbon. Um, and when it becomes a joke, right? Oh, here's another celebrity brand like Kendall Jenner, the 808, or not that she's a joke, but just it becomes the butt of a joke that another celebrity is doing another thing. Her tequila, by the way, is fantastic and will sell millions of bottles, I have no doubt. When someone talks about your brand, you don't want the phrase to start with, oh, it's another X, right? It's another Y. You don't want to be that. And so we're entering that era with celebrity brands right now, you know, because everyone's got something. And I, we used to sell Casa Mexico tequila, which is owned by uh, Mario Lopez and uh, Oscar de la Hoya. You know, two people who you wouldn't think are are in the game, uh, especially together, let alone separately, but happen to have a very good brand in Casa Mexico. So it, it's just, you know, again, it's, it, it's what's important to the consumer, what resonates with the consumer. And um, the most important aspect is, will they buy it again? Not the mm -hmm. first time, but the second time. So, what are, so being in the M&A game and being director of investment banking at Vicente and Partners, what are you looking for when a brand comes to you and says, Hey, I need capital. Can you help us? Can you help us raise money for our brand? What are popular M&A triggers that you look for to either take a brand on in support 
or metrics you use to decide if you want to move forward with them? So I wouldn't say there is exactly a model there, but uh, if, if I'm thinking, if I'm thinking long-term, it's always about who would be a natural acquirer for the brand, you know, forget about scale today, forget about like all of the finer details, but the big picture is really who has a space, who has white space in their portfolio that it would make sense for them that when the brand is hitting, you know, 50, 100, 200,000 cases, depending on the category, that they're like, okay, we need to own that. Because once, once and if you manage to reach that point, the major players are, they've, they've shown times and times again that they're ready to open the checkbook and, and, make, and make very good offers in, in the categories where they need to be. So that would be the first thing, very, very first thing. And for every category, there are ways to double click, I would say, and go beyond thinking, okay, this is tequila at this price point. There is a lot more and the capacity to make every sector a lot more granular. Diageo buying Casamigos, for instance, initially was a surprise because we're like, okay, at this price point in this category, they already have something. But they had something that was resonating with a different type of consumer than what the Casamigos consumer was really looking for and bringing to the picture for them. Mm -hmm. So that's, that's the first aspect. The second aspect that I, I consider as key uh, is assuming that the brand has a certain level of sales already, looking at metrics in the type of velocity in particular, meaning that in given locations, how much are people actually coming and buying the products again and again and again to really get a sense of, okay, how much consumer support is there actually behind the brand, even if the distribution is limited in its earlier days. That's the other aspect I'm looking for. Uh, then we kind of step away a little bit and start looking bigger picture at some of the elements I've mentioned earlier in terms of the story. What are the elements that are truly carrying the story and making people actually seek out the brand? Two, in terms of the packaging, does it stand out? Is there something like particularly notable for the packaging of the product in that specific category that will make people curious? And three is in terms of the taste. If I have the chance, I will taste the product. Uh, short of that, it's interesting if the brand has managed to secure some, you know, gold, double gold, or any, any type of award uh, in the recent period in particular, uh, because this is also how the distributors and the retailers are thinking about it in trying to showcase product and bring something forward. So that's some of the key aspects. More from a financial standpoint, um, of course, any sort of traction from a top line perspective is helpful, but also just as important, I would be looking at the gross margin profile. Mm -hmm. Because at, at the end of the day, EBITDA, bottom line profitability for a major player, it doesn't really matter. Most of it will be replaced by their own platform and they will bring all the efficiencies necessary. But anything in the way of gross profitability or brand contribution margin, it's a lot harder to fix. So. Just want to make sure that, again, given the specific category, we're starting at the right level. Yeah, that's, and it's funny, that's, that's great feedback. And I, I don't, I think, you know, I mirror almost all of what you're saying. And I think that, look, it's, it's really kind of fucked up because people don't, you know, we look at brands all the time and they're like, uh, well, our revenue is this and our EBITDA is this. And at the end of the day, it's boxes. It's all boxes. 
And uh, Diageo or Constellation or Pernod Ricard or Stoli Group or ABI or Miller Coors, and the list goes on, will assign a value to a box, a depletion box, and that's how you're valued. It's like they'll take away debt and they'll, and they'll do ad backs for owner's, owner's bullshit that goes through the P&L, like their boat and their house and their kids, you know, their kids' uh, bar mitzvah or whatever. And then, and then that becomes your valuation. It really, yeah, you know, it's, it's, it's just that simple, really. Yeah, I think, I mean, my, my own experience, sell side and buy side, is that it's the actual playbook of how they run it internally is a little bit more complex. Huh? I'd say the, the, the general picture tends to be, at least the way I see it, is okay, if we own this brand in the portfolio starting today, where do we think we can get in five years or 10 years down the line with our playbook, our model? with, of course, the velocity numbers, distribution numbers that are existing today, how big can it get? And then you discount back from there to sort of try to triangulate effectively what you've just described, the value that you will allocate per case. So yeah. it's, it, it tends to get a little bit more complicated, but it boils down to that. Yeah, I mean, complicated, it's really, what I look at is I've, I meet suppliers all the time that are trying to run up sales for an exit or there are suppliers that want to run a business, right? And that's, yeah. what I'm try- that's what I'm trying to get to. There's two different kinds, right? There's sure. all sorts of scenarios about people that are buying their own samples, buying their own depletions, just to get depletions up. And then they go pitch it and say, look, I've sold 100,000 cases, but little do they know 20,000 were sold to Uncle Steve, you know, uh, or sitting in some trailer somewhere. And the other ones are guys who really want to build a brand. And, you know, those are just different kinds of buyers and, and the acquirers are not stupid people. They, they know, you know, only a few guys have gotten away with like fake depletions and all that. And we all know the same players that have done that. And, mm-hmm. and that's great. But once you get away with it, those, those holes are gone. We're coming, we're, we're, we're coming to the end or close to our end. And so we play, we're, I do have a question before we play a game. We play a game here at the end called uh, take or drink or pass. And where I give you, I give you a bunch of categories and you, all you simply say is take a drink or pass. Like, you know, take a drink being, it works for me. I like it. Not you personally, but your world. I or get pa- it. Or pass means, you know, no thanks. But before I do that, um, what do you think, or what is your firm's opinion on hot categories right now? Like, what are you looking at? What deals are you seeing in terms of where the market is going as it relates to where you're putting dollars? I would say that the perennial hot categories in, uh, in the U.S. over the past few years have been namely gin and aged rum. Sorry, rum in general, but really we're talking about aged rum. Uh, it's been interesting to see, of course, acceleration of movement from the big players in these two categories. Uh, and so gin, of course, aviation is, is one case, but Fords, Chase. Uh, so there's been, there's been a little bit more there and, and Pernod also with a few acquisitions in the space. Aged mm-hmm. uh, ROM, it's been interesting more recently because uh, we've seen over the course of seven days, Moet Hennessy coming out with their own brand, uh, Eminente, and Pernod making an acquisition of this Colombian high super premium brand or even higher, uh, La Sierra. So it's interesting how after a number of years of, of a lot of conversations in the space, these things actually tend to happen. I suspect there's going to be more because there is still meaningful holes in the portfolio of big players in these categories, besides the players I've already mentioned. And so quite a bit of interest on, on these still. 
Ready to Drink, of course, has received a huge boost with the pandemic. Yeah. It was already an interesting category before. Uh, now everybody and, and, the, and their neighbor is, uh, is in Ready to Drink. Uh, I think it will, be, uh, it will be a category that will need to deflate a bit. Uh, we're not like admirable growth and some companies are doing extremely well but it is more difficult to be truly differentiated. Too many brands are just going on the premise of, hey, we've got great, like, great tasting cocktails and we're super convenient. And it's like, yep, like most of the other brands out there. And so there's going to be the need for differentiation to come together a little bit more. Yeah, uh, I, I, I'm real quick on that. I, I'm of the ilk, no one, no one makes something thinking it sucks, right? <laughs> so all these suppliers who are like, mine is really good, no shit. You're making some, that's why you're making it because it's really good. So I, so I don't think that's a pillar to stand on. My, my product is good because you wouldn't invest $50,000 and get TTB and compliance and you wouldn't get packaging if your product wasn't good. So I just, I find it so funny suppliers, you, you know, off, uh, off topics, suppliers all think they're going to be the next the next X, the next Y. And the reality is what people don't understand is that no one needs anything we sell. Not a soul. No one needs what I, and you folks at home can't see this, but I've got three, 400 bottles behind me in my home office and um, no one needs any of it. They, you have to, and, if you, and, you're, and you're not creating new drinkers when you create a new brand. You've got to steal share, right? You, what I call capture livers. You know, you're not, if you have a vodka, for instance, you're not creating a new vodka drinker, you're stealing a vodka drinker from someone else. Right. And, that, and that costs money and that costs time and that costs marketing and, and all of those things. So it's just, it, it's, you know, we love to help our supplier partners. Matthew, I know you do. I've been on the, I've been on a buy side against you or at least a, a discussion on a buy side. I, you're very thoughtful in how you deal with your clients and, and you're very convincing. Um, I think, that, yeah, of course, absolutely. And I think that, and smart, smart goes without saying. And I think that suppliers that are out there looking for capital have to have a value proposition that is not just for them, it's, up for, it's for everyone, right? If you make a product for yourself, you're gonna have an audience of one. If you make a product for everyone, you'll have an audience of everyone. Seems simple. Um, so let's do um, drink or take a pass. You ready? Sounds good. Non-alk whiskey. Pass. Why? I don't understand the occasion. You want a cocktail with no alcohol? I mean, the, the non-alk categories are just so big with so many offerings, so different taste profiles. Why would you need to make a copy of something in alcohol to enjoy, I don't. To me, it doesn't resonate. I, I know that there's a lot of investment there, but to me, it doesn't resonate. Okay. Any uh, aged 100% agave tequila? Drink or pass? Drink. Drink. Um, canned wine. Drink. Canned RTD. Which, which sorry, on canned yeah. wine, I know I'm going to get flagged because being French, yeah, canned yeah, yeah. wine was a big no-no for a while. Canned RTD. I I drink it. Mm -hmm. Would you drink a canned RTD over a bottled RTD, or no different? And the reason I ask the difference to me is 
a bottled RTD is a 700 or a, or a 750, um, and you've got to bring a glass bottle somewhere. A canned RTD you can bring on a boat, bring to the beach, bring to Central Park, and crack it and listen to a concert. I, I, I get it. I mean, like I said, all the RTDs are, were the best cocktail and were super convenient. So I, yeah. I definitely understand the convenience aspect. I think canned is in the domain of RTD is superior. I think ready to, ready to mix in a bottle is a different story, though. Okay. Uh, yeah, that's an extra. You still have to bring a tonic or bring something, right? You have to, if you're ready to mix, then you got to bring something else with it, right? Which then it becomes from easy to hard. Mm -hmm. What do you feel about CBD infused anything, beverage wise? Drink. Drink. Drink all day. Uh, <laughs> is, no, 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 but drink still. Is THC going to replace a category of the sum of the of the under premium? I think there is an opportunity. I don't know if it's only under premium. Um, well, first, THC as a whole, right, smokable, etc. It's, I mean, it's existing and it has existed for a while already. Mm -hmm. So, even with legalization, I don't, I don't know that you're getting that many more smokers that will replace alcohol. That's the first part. THC infused beverages coming and eating some of the beverage alcohols lunch or liver access, like you, you said earlier, I think it's possible, but I think it's also still too early that many of the brands I've seen out there, whether it's up in Canada or even in the US, uh, they talk a lot about bioavailability and this type of, of things and and microdosing, I know, is also a very big topic these days. Yeah, From what I understand of the research today, it's still too early to have like really good products uh, that will actually be credible competitors to alcohol. So you're going to have, yes, people testing. I don't know to what degree this will actually replace alcohol. Yeah, my, my feeling is, is that smoking a joint will replace a six-pack of Miller Lite, meaning that there's nothing specifically special particularly special about Miller Lite, Bud Light, Coors Light, Mick Ultra, whatever, Stoli, Smirnoff, Jack, Jim, I can go on. There's nothing special about it. So it's interchangeable between a one hitter and a, and a glass of bourbon, a cheap bourbon. Where, so I think that category will get a little bit affected. Uh, I think that where the categories that are safe are premium wine, premium spirits, premium uh, beer, and non-alc. Because you can't, you can't smoke flour or whatever, you know, you can't take a, a joint and replace it with uh, Angel's Envy. Right? I'm sorry, you can't replace Angel's Envy with a joint. It's, it's, you can't do it. You can replace a couple beers with a joint. And I think that's what's going to happen. So I think the suppliers that are going to be most affected by the legalization of marijuana around the country, and there's, I think, six or eight states now. More like 11. close to 15. Yeah, I was going to say, or 11 to 15. I was, you know, there, I think the, the brands that should be scared are these daily drinkers. You know, the, the, the non-premium, the non-special occasion, the just come home and have a drink of something. And I think that sure. would be that will be replaced by taking that ability or what have you. Yeah, I mean, there's a good reason why the beer players have all made investments or JVs in the category precisely to look into it. And when the 
and the spirits players so far have mostly not. Yeah, well, good. But but I'm going back to the to the point that cannabis has been around for a long time, and a big part of legalization is about replacing the black market with an official market. I don't know that you're creating a whole new contingent of smokers that did not exist today or would have not existed before. I, um, I, I'm, I'm with you on that, except I will only add that because it's legal, it is commonly accepted. So the, the cannabis user that existed but wasn't actively smoking because there, it was illegal for any number of reasons now has access to it through a dispensary and there will be some attrition there. I don't, I, I agree with sure. you that this has been around since forever, but the fact, look, we, I'm in Illinois, you're in New York, in New York in the summer, the whole town smells like pot and urine in, you know, in, and you know, that's true. Um, and in Illinois, there's cannabis stores every couple miles that look like Apple stores. So there's something there. Obviously, I, I am an investor in cannabis. I am an investor in cannabis technology and cannabis compliance, full disclosure. So you know, time will tell, right? But I think that by the midterms, so two years from now or a year and a half from now, I think there'll be another 10 states that voted in. And, and then if half the country is legal on a state-by-state basis, you're going to have a, a real argument for federal regulation. I'm not going to wade in the... The, the capacity of Congress to move forward on anything. Good. Well, I, I mean, I'm just pontificating. What do I know, right? Hey, but thanks for thanks for being on the show. Pleasure. Yeah, I really, I really enjoyed having you. How can people reach you if they want to talk about your company and what how you can help them? Sure. I mean, easiest. So my my LinkedIn profile is very easy to find. Uh, I don't know if there is a way to to post also my email or, or similar link to the, to the podcast. Yeah, it will be linked um, up for sure. So that's, that's probably going to be easiest. But yeah, email, email is probably the, the easiest. And I, I try to be as reachable as possible through as many means as possible. Uh, that's, that's the beauty of being on the sales side, I guess. And, and if I don't reply fast, uh, at the very least, I try to reply to everything. Yeah, and I can tell you this, folks, if you do reach out, he does reply fast and he does reply thoughtfully. So you, uh, you're a great guy. Thank you for coming on the show today. I really appreciate it. Thank you.